This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, August 6, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. A year since the U.S. began fighting the so-called Islamic State in Iraq, a fight that's included thousands of airstrikes and thousands of U.S. soldiers on the ground, Congress has yet to actually authorize these actions with a declaration of war. That's a problem, says Democratic U.S. Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia. He says Congress is the ultimate authority on matters of war and needs to assert its power to declare it. He spoke at the Cato Institute this morning. We are today uh, starting in the Senate. It started last week, the traditional August recess um, in Congress. And Congress is an interesting place because we like to take vacations like other Americans do, but few, uh, few are legally required to take, to take a vacation. And, and Congress is actually required by law to take an August recess. Um, This was a part of a a bill called the Legislative Reorganization Act of 1970. Uh, We are supposed to take off in odd-numbered years. The House is adjourned from the first Friday in August until the Tuesday after Labor Day, and that is a legal mandate. There is an exception in the statute. The exception says that the mandated recess, quote, shall not be applicable if on July 31 of such year, a state of war exists pursuant to a declaration of war by Congress. And again, the, the, the mandated August break is not applicable if a state of war exists pursuant to a declaration of war by Congress. Now, that provision from the 1970 Reorganization Act makes perfect sense. I mean, Congress shouldn't go out for a mandatory 30-day vacation when the nation's at war. It's not right that American troops should be putting their lives at risk thousands of miles from home while Congress takes a mandated one month off, the Congress that passed this bill in 1970 during the Vietnam War, they had an expectation about how serious war was and about how Congress, the institution charged with declaring war, would treat such a serious obligation. Well, today we're starting on our one month adjournment with a nation at war. As Gene said, This Saturday, the 8th of August, marks one year since President Obama began a bombing campaign against the Islamic State in northern Iraq to protect the Kurdish region around Erbil and Mount Sinjar. In the past year, about 30 to 30, a growing number, now about 3,500 members of the U.S. military have served in Operation Inherent Resolve. Many from Virginia, there's a carrier strike group, the Roosevelt Strike Group, that is over deployed in the theater now. Um, about 5,000 airstrikes, as Jean mentioned, and these, uh, these U.S. servicemen and women are <clears throat> carrying out special forces operations, doing airstrikes, training and equipping the Iraqi military, the Kurdish Peshmerga, and then freedom fighters in Syria who are battling against ISIS. We have made major gains. I just came back from Iraq, Kurdistan, Kuwait, uh, Turkey, right on the Syrian border within the last month. And I will tell you this, we have made major gains against ISIL, especially in northern Iraq because of the partnership with the Kurds, and now more recently in northern Syria, also because of the partnership with Syrian Kurds. But the threat that's posed by ISIL definitely continues to spread in the region and beyond. The wars cost $3.2 billion, American taxpayer dollars, about $9.5 million a day. And seven American service members have lost their lives in connection with Operation Inherent Resolve. Recently, if you just go by what's in the paper, we've heard that the administration has plans to expand it 
in kind of incremental ways, but ways that are pretty important because they're not just expansions of degree, they're really expansions of kind. So the president has now authorized, we see, the ability of the United States to take military action against the Assad regime in Syria if the Syrian military takes steps against the, the opponents, the trained moderates that are fighting ISIL in Syria. And, and that is likely to happen. And then we will be in military conflict with the Syrian military. We're expanding our coordination with Turkey in the mission this morning. First drone strike from, uh, uh, from the Turkish uh, base at Injerlik in Syria was announced. And uh, we're even hearing rumors, although the administration is sort of denying this, rumors are something that I actually think would be a good idea if it was declared, it was part of a declared operation, of a potential humanitarian safe zone inside Syria on the Turkish border that would be jointly protected by Turkish ground forces and American air assets to allow refugees in Syria, whether they're fleeing Bashar al-Assad, ISIL, or cholera, a safe haven to come to since the surrounding countries have been so overrun with refugees, it's difficult for them to take more. We've had testimony. Gene was, uh, was, was optimistic when he said, you know, the president has talked about this maybe being a two or three year engagement. We've had testimony by military leaders in, in terms of the threat of ISIL at hearings where they've said this could go on easily for 10 years. But while the war is expanding, and we've got these troops that are risking their lives far from home, and as we prepare to go on the one-month vacation anyway, there is a tacit agreement of both parties, both chambers to avoid, and, and both branches, executive and legislative, to avoid really serious discussion and authorization of this war. The president maintains that he can conduct this war without authorization from Congress. I think the legal claim that I can do this because of the 9-11 authorization is ridiculous. The president waited more than six months after initiating this military action to even send a draft authorization to Congress. And I'll say here, I'm a supporter of the president, and I think the US military should be taking action against ISIL. And I met with President Barzani in Erbil, and the first thing he said to me a month ago was, you tell President Obama thank you. If he had not st started this bombing campaign in August, we wouldn't be here now. There wouldn't be a Kurdistan in northern Iraq now. So this is not about not supporting the need for military action. It is about how military action is supposed to commence. The president waited for six months to send the authorization to Congress, and the White House has not pushed us to do anything with it. But as weird as the president's behavior is in terms of establishing this precedent of executive overreach, which Madison saw, and that's why Madison drafted the war powers allocation as he did, congressional behavior has been even more unusual. The, though vested with the sole power to declare war pursuant to Article I of the Constitution, Congress has refused to meaningfully debate or vote, debate or vote, not just vote, debate or vote, with respect to this war against the Islamic State. And this is a Congress that is quick to criticize this president for executive action. Oh, you've overreached by doing executive things on immigration. You've overreached by doing executive things in terms of fixes to the Affordable Care Act. But this is one area where, no, we're not gonna sue the imperial president over this. Uh, we're not gonna criticize the imperial president over this. We're gonna give a green light to the imperial president over this. Do it and do not come to us and do not ask us because we don't want to say anything about it. As far as our allies know, as far as ISIL knows, and sadly, as far as our troops know, Congress is indifferent to this. If they look at what we've done in a year, 
the only reasonable conclusion is that we're indifferent to it. I first introduced a resolution to force Congress to authorize this military action war under specific limitations the day after the president on September 10 faced the nation on TV and said we need to be taking military action against ISIL. It went precisely nowhere. Instead, what Congress did was Congress recessed before the midterm elections earlier than they had done since 1960 while a war was underway. Within days after the president went to the nation and said, we're at war and we've got to do this, Congress recessed before the midterm election like seven weeks early. Um, but eventually the, the resolution I put in did get a hearing in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in December and it got a, a vote. Now sadly it was a partisan vote, but the vote was to authorize military action under limited circumstances. The Republicans all voted against it. It still passed, we were in majority. And they had a reason I can understand. They said, look, we're about to take over the majority in the Senate. We would rather take this issue, take ownership of this issue and do something with it. It's mid-December, we're not gonna vote for it, but we're gonna get right to it as soon as January 3rd comes around. Well, January 3rd came around and then the argument was, well, you know, the president had sent us an authorization and then the president sent an authorization in mid-February and then the argument was, well, we gotta worry about Iran now. And it's now been six months since the president has sent the authorization to Congress and again, virtually nothing is done has been done. To try to prod the new Senate under the new majority, Senator Jeff Flake and I introduced a, a war powers resolution in June, June 8, two, 10 months from the day of the start of the war. And we made it bipartisan and because we wanted to show that we could reach a bipartisan consensus. It, we had talked to all of our colleagues on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. We gathered their intel. We didn't, we didn't attempt to solve everyone's concern or problem. We attempted to do a good faith bipartisan version that would be then the subject of amendment, obviously. And we pushed, but in the two months since we've introduced it, we've had a few discussions and closed sessions in the Senate Foreign Relations Commission, but otherwise silence anywhere else outside of the uh, of our committee has been silent in the Senate. So, what has one year meant? Well, to our institutions, one year of war against the Islamic State has transformed a president who was elected in part because of his early opposition to the Iraq war into an executive war president, uh, maybe a perpetual war president. One year of war against ISIL has stretched the 2001 authorization for use of military force that was passed to defeat the perpetrators of September 11 far beyond its original meaning or intent. In fact, I would argue that the Bush and Obama um, interpretations of the 2001 authorization actually are 180 degrees different than what was intended because Gene, I'm sure you know this, but I don't know that everybody does. There was an authorization that the Bush administration tried to get Congress to pass right after 9-11 that said we give the president the ability to take action against nations or organizations that want to harm the United States. It was a, it was a blanket all-purpose authorization. And even in the aftermath of 9-11, Congress was smart enough to say, hold on a second. We're not going to give you a blanket war authority. We're going to vote that down and only approve the more narrow authorization that says you can take action against the perpetrators of 9-11. But the administration gloss that the Bush administration put on this, that the Obama administration has continued and even expanded, basically has transformed the 9-11 authorization today into exactly what the Congress rejected two days after the 9-11 attacks. 
One year of war has shown to all that neither Congress nor the President feels any obligation to follow the 1973 War Powers Resolution, which requires that the President cease any unilateral executive-initiated war within 90 days unless Congress votes to approve it. That statute is now completely shredded, uh, and, and no one wants to follow it or even pay attention to it anymore. And finally, one year of war has demonstrated that Congress would rather hide from its constitutional duty to declare war than to have a meaningful debate about whether and how the United States should militarily engage against the Islamic State. Here's an irony. The one-year anniversary of the war against ISIL precisely coincides with this incredibly energetic and vigorous congressional effort to challenge U.S. diplomacy with respect to the Iranian nuclear agreement. What does it say? What does it say about Congress or about our institutions generally when you see congressional indifference to war but energetic congressional desire to challenge diplomacy? What does that say? Strangely, all this is happening while there is a broad bipartisan support for the military action against ISIL. I would venture that three-quarters of members of both houses would believe that the U.S. should be engaged in military action against ISIL under some circumstances, and there's difference on the details, obviously. There's also strong international support against ISIL. Sixty nations are part of the coalition. The American public overwhelmingly favors action against the Islamic State about 65%, and, and the American public even more strongly believes that Congress needs to authorize that action, nearly 80%. So what explains the, the conspiracy of silence for the last year? Well, last month we had a hearing, um, the confirmation hearing for General Joe Dunford, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, to be confirmed as the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the Armed Services Committee where I serve. And um, I asked him, on behalf of not just Marines, but everybody that he'll lead, whether congressional action to finally authorize this war how, would, would be well-received by our troops. And his answer to me kind of said it all. Quote, I think what our young men and women need, and it's really all they need to do what we ask them to do, is a sense that what they're doing has a purpose, has meaning, and has the support of the American people. A debate in Congress by the people's elected representatives and a vote to authorize the most solemn act of war is how we tell our troops that what they're doing, what they're risking their lives for, has purpose, has meaning, and has the support of the American people. Otherwise, we're asking them to risk their lives without even bothering to discuss what the mission is, whether the mission is something we support. And, and can there be anything more immoral than that to order troops to risk their lives in support of a military mission that we are unwilling even to discuss. So one year in, Saturday is the anniversary, our service members are doing their jobs, but they're waiting on us to do ours. Um, how about that August recess thing? How about the 30-day the 30 30 day adjournment unless? How can we go on the recess with a war going on? Well, you know, that's actually pretty easy because the part of the statute that creates an exception for the, from the mandatory August recess only applies, quote, if there has been a declaration of war by Congress. Because we haven't even bothered to debate or vote or authorize this war in the year since it started, we are still entitled by statute to have a 30-day August adjournment. 
Let me conclude from my critique and offer what I think we ought to do. This is a topic I came to the Senate deeply interested in. The vote around the Iraq War in 2002, I was Lieutenant Governor of Virginia at the time. I was profoundly disturbed. I didn't have any of the intel. I, I don't know how I would have voted, because I didn't have what members of Congress had. But I was profoundly disturbed at that vote because I was listening to it on the radio. Some of you remember it was being broadcast live. And I was traveling around. I was in Williamsburg listening to it. And uh, it just struck me, wow, why are we having this debate two or three weeks before a midterm election? There was only about one senator who was standing on the floor saying, hold on a second. The timing on this is wrong. Remember, we didn't go into Iraq pursuant to that authorization until March. But the debate was pushed to two weeks before a midterm election, the traditional midterm where the president's party tends to lose. And it seemed to me to be entirely unkosher, if that's a word, to try to put a debate about war right in front of a midterm to try to affect the midterm outcomes. Hey, it was political genius. It did affect the outcome of the midterms. That was one of the best midterms that a president ever had two years in. But it was an entirely cynical exercise to time it in a way that was completely artificial. That got me really into this question of, well, I don't, I don't necessarily know what the answer should have been, but it's, it's got to be done better than this. And so I came to the Senate um, uh, 10 years later, 11 years later, with a real passion about this issue that, frankly, nobody else really had. Pe people th think this issue is kind of a boring one, more understand now why it's important. Here's what I think we need to do. First, we have to do an authorization for this military action against ISIL. This is, in my view, an illegal war right now because I, there is not, Article 2 does not support a war unless it's in the imminent defense of the United States. So Article 2 does give the president power to, to take executive action to defend the United States or embassies or consulates, but we're be in the event of an imminent threat. But all the testimony has been that the threat to the United States is not imminent, at this, so Article 2 doesn't cover it. And the authorization from 9-11 allowing efforts against the perpetrators of the 9-11 attack, ISIL didn't start till 2003. ISIL is, is fighting with al-Qaeda in a number of places, especially in parts of Syria. So to claim that the 2001 authorization covers this is specious in my view. So we need to do this authorization, either the version that Flake and I have or clearly it would be amended or whatever. And I'm, I predict that we're going to do it. There will be a time come, and I'm sorry it hadn't come yet, where the collective either outrage of the American public or the shame of members of Congress over a war that's one year. Well, could it be two years? Could it be three years? Could it be five years? Going on without limit, without geographic limitation will compel Congress to act. There would also be another thing that I pray doesn't happen. We've lost seven service members' lives in connection with this mission. But if we lose one life, like Jordan lost with a pilot who was captured by ISIL and horribly tortured publicly, in view. If that happens, does anybody in here doubt that Congress will act within a day to authorize military action against ISIL? But why should we wait for that? Why should we wait for that? So we need to do the authorization in the short term for this war against ISIL. Second, we need to revise the 2001 authorization. Gene indicated that. It, it is now being interpreted as a blank check to allow war without geographic limitation, without temporal limitation. Administration witnesses to my questioning have blithely said that they thought that the war authorized by the 9-1401 authorization would easily go on another 25 or 30 years. 
we've got to revise the authorization to impose some significant limitations. It's, it's way too broad in some areas, but it's actually too narrow in some others. The whole question of military action against non-state actors is a thorny little question. And so we need to dig into that as we revise the O1AUMF. And the last thing we need to do is we've just got to give up on the War Powers Resolution in 1973 and rewrite it. Senator McCain and I have a bill called the War Powers Consultation Act, which would scrap the War Powers Resolution um, of 73 and then would do in a new uh, process for defining the procedure between the executive and legislature on war making. The act basically does three things. One, it defines what war is, which isn't so easy in the days of drones and cyber attacks and non-state actors. Um, second, it defines what consultation is. You'll hear a president say, well, I consulted with Congress about it. I remember once being on armed services and foreign relations and seeing something about uh, efforts against ISIL, and the president said, I've consulted with Congress. And I was like, well, I'm on both committees. I've never heard about this. Presidents can say, I called two committee chairs or three people I thought were friendly in Congress, and hence that's consultation. The act defines, sets up a permanent consultative committee, bicameral, bipartisan, and, and requires continuous dialogue between the executive and that committee over hot spots around the world. That is then defined as consultation. And the third thing that the act does is define voting procedures whereby Congress really would have to vote. We're not doing that under the, the War Powers Resolution now, but we need to get back to it. Senator McCain and I are working on this and trying to gather support. And it's not been easy, but 15 years of war under an open-ended 60-word authorization should have taught us something. And it is my hope that uh, it is my hope that after a year of war, I, I would have thought we would have learned it by now, but after a year of an undeclared war, I hope that uh, people will come to their senses and start taking this more seriously. Tim Kaine is a Democratic U.S. Senator from the Commonwealth of Virginia. He spoke at the Cato Institute this morning. You can watch the full event and read more about war powers at our website, cato.org.